0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Tess Latham. This is episode 47 and we are concentrating on a mysterious and contradicted part of southern Africa called the Hantam. We are also going to meet a German sailor who deserted and ran away to the Orange River in the 1780s by the name of Jan Blum. He'd worked as an overseer, a at Knecht, at Sunfontein Farm owned by Petrus Spina. Groups of white hunters were also now resident in the area to the south of the Orange by this stage and we've already heard about how the Kora, the Grikwa, and the Urlams had begun moving into areas dominated by the great Namakwa. This district derived its name from the solitary mountain at the northwestern edge of the Onda Rochefeld. To the southwest lay the Bockefeld Mountains, to the northwest, Namakwa Land. And between Hantam Mountain and the Orange River, which lay due north, were miles of bushman land. Today's modern town of Kilvinia is just south of Hantam's Peak. So the Hantam was in a position that made it a key region in the northwestern Cape Frontier zone. It formed a link between the distant outposts of Namakwaland and the rest of the colonial frontier. It linked the pastoralists of Namakwaland to Cape Town and therefore the rest of the world. You've heard about some of the richest men in the colony who had many farms in this area of the northern Karoo. And one of these was Servas van Brede who owned five farms in the Ornebockeveld around Huntum, and two in Namakwaland. And yet these men were accused of not pulling their weight when it came to commando fighting. Other farmers, who had only a few hundred sheep, would complain repeatedly to the governors over the years that neither Fran Breda and his ilk, nor his servants, and the khoisan he hired participated in the commandos. Meester Johannes van Sale, for example, voiced the discontent of these poorer farmers and suggested that those with many farms should supply proportionally more towards the needs of the commando. That didn't go down well in the upper echelons of elite Stellenbosch. By the mid-1780s, the farmers in the Huntum were threatened by the sand in the north and said they could not join commandos further east. They had set up a Reiter Yacht, a permanent force of four men to patrol the border between the Huntum and through Bushmanland. But by 1785, security declined drastically, particularly in the northwestern frontier. Frightened trekboers in the Sneerbach, Kambidou, Koup, and the Rocheveld abandoned their farms. While in the Hantam itself, the locals refused to join another new commander set up to attack the sand. By 1786, Mister Johannes van Zyl wrote to the Landrost in Stellenmosh and tendered his resignation things were so bad. He said his health was failing and his farm was the most remote, therefore the most exposed to sand attack. The First Peoples were extremely busy in these years. They had made off with 148 cattle and guns from farmer Paul Carsten and murdered his cattle drover for good measure. In Fensail's place arrived a younger man, literate, 30-year-old, by the name of Willem Adrian Nell, the new Feldwachtmeister. Nell realized that the Hantam was becoming as desolate as the region to the north of the Orange River and it was clear that the sand were a real danger. These days, there is a belief that the sand were easy victims of white settler expansion, but you must understand that these first peoples fought extremely hard and well to retain their ancient lifestyle. It was not one-way traffic. The trekboers were terrified of the sand, with their poisoned arrows and bushcraft that was far beyond what any other people they had come across could approximate. The first people of southern Africa were at one with their landscape and could read sign, tracks, weather, animal behavior, far more accurately than anyone else in the region of whatever skin color. They were so tuned to the environment that they'd blend in. They'd climb the mountains quicker than anyone, trotted across the blazing hot boss at 8 kilometers an hour, while trekwars barely moved 8 kilometers a day in the wagons. The sand loved moving around at night, silently like jackals, smelling out the settlers whose wagons and horses and oxen sent odours drifting hundreds of metres out ahead of them. The sand also knew the settlers' weak points and picked on isolated farms. Nell sent for help from the Faltbach mestus of the Ulfant and Doran rivers, as well as the little Namakwa He was particularly interested in what he called Tabastus and Hottentotten of the district, who were living independently. All he asked for was one commando a year to rid the region of the sand, to exterminate them, in other words. There was a growing economic, military and environmental crisis. The amount of water and good grazing was reduced and the settlers Koi Koi and Bastar Trek felt their resources dwindling in the hunter. The Boers had come up hard against the sand in the north and that was a problem because it prevented more expansion. The Koi were also evacuating the region, as we heard last episode. They were heading across the Orange River. German settlers predominated as the first whites to move into this area, pushing the boundaries of the hunter. Men like Matthias Moodle at Kamas, an hour from the Orange River, and further west, another German, Fulker Schumacher, who worked a lone farm. Yet another famous German I've mentioned, Jan Blum, lived further downstream the Orange and was a deserted sailor and a murderer. He had first arrived in the northern frontier zone as a fugitive from justice. After deserting from a ship in Cape Town in 1780, he had moved around the territory close to the harbour and married a local woman. But he killed her one night in a jealous rage, then fled to the Orange. I've mentioned the vagabonds, the murderers and raiders of all races who found sanctuary here, and Bloom is an ideal example. Bloom was a real man of the huntum, sometimes indulging in illegal pursuits, such as hippo and elephant hunting. At the same time, he began to consolidate his position along the Orange and was employed at times by Petrus Pinar, a local rich farmer. Eventually, Blum had married up to 12 wives, including Korana women of the Cats and Springbok clans. So, this was one of the men who lived amongst the people of the river and had a major influence on events. Things, though, could only end in one way, as you're going to hear. Blum was the Archetypal anti-hero, if you like. Local farmer Adrian von Sale and another called Visa decided they'd head off to locate some stolen cattle in the late 1780s and it was to Blum's farm that they went. Dismounting from their horses one day, but retaining their muskets, they approached the German in a confrontational mood. They'd lost some of their cattle. I guess also... Riding around in the blazing heat of the huntum, does that to a fellow. Visa asked Bloom where the stolen cattle were, and Bloom replied in words apparently typical of his character. By the way, these words are the only ever uttered that were recorded. Bin ik your Biswacht Am I your cattle keeper? Visa was not to be trifled with, and knocked Bloom out cold, leaving him lying senseless on the felt while Fonsale and his men rounded up Blum's cattle and rode off. They had stolen Blum's animals. There was no proof that Blum had actually made off with their herd in the first place. It was a classic bit of cattle rustling. Fonsale and Visa threatened their Koikoi servants with death if they ever revealed what had actually happened. Then they did the usual thing of divvying up the cattle between them, the two white men, and left their servants out of the deal. As usual, not the wisest course of action if you're demanding silence in connection with a crime. Things are harsh in the huntum. You don't summer start herding 260 new cattle on your farm without someone noticing. When the neighbours began pointing out to Fensel that he had won the cow lottery, so to speak, Fensel realised the game was up and rode to the Landros to confess. However, he claimed he'd bartered the cattle illegally, and failed to mention the trail of violence he'd actually left in the huntum. As you're going to hear in a moment, knocking Bloom out was a minor infringement compared to what these two, Pansel and Visa, had been up to. Pansel said he had taken, you know, six or eight cattle and put on his most glum and self-deprecating face. He said these were obtained from local koi in exchange for helping them in a dispute with neighbours. But he couldn't even get that right. He lied, saying they'd rushed into a cave and saved themselves. Unfortunately for our lying Huntum friend, Sale, his story did not tally with that of Sebastian Valentijn van Rienen. This man complained that Sale had allowed more than 260 head of cattle to stray onto his land and eat his grass. What Sale had failed to mention was that on the way to Bloom, he'd shot up a koi koi crawl killing about a dozen men, women, and children. Another farmer by the name of David Friedrich Strauss of the Huntum said he was minding his own business when an angry man by the name of Jan Blum rode up one day, and Blum had scary news. Blum said he'd been visited by 400 Namakwa, who'd been on their way to attack Adrian von Sale in revenge for his bloodlust a few weeks before in the shooting incident. Blum convinced this war party that von Sale lived too far inland to be easily reached, and too many farms lay between him and the Orange River. The Namakwa were von Sale's victims, and they were seeking revenge, but they turned around muttering that tomorrow is another day. By now the local hantam Feldbach's mister was Adrian Nell, who realized that something had to be done and decided to launch what was called a rigorous inquiry into the incident. The Koi Koi on the river was summoned along with Van Sale's servants in order to give evidence. Piet Eiland, Paul and Gert Engelbrecht, and two coy servants called Andries and Reiter, eventually testified in 1787, and the latter two were terrified. Giving evidence honestly about your boss when he's likely to shoot you off the cuff takes some guts. Worse, Van Sale was actually a relative of Adrian Nels, who immediately began to bend the, the scales of justice. Of course, the playing field was not level because Nell went to great lengths restricting the evidence of eyewitnesses and one in particular by the name of Gerrit Beer. After Beer gave evidence which felt Wachter Mr. Belittled, he did what most people would do and fled for his life to Damakwaland. Andries and Reiter also fled, but in the other direction, to Stillebosch, where they threw themselves on the mercy of the Landrost. They were so terrified that they told the local authorities they were willing to live the rest of their lives in the town and work for food alone. And so, the Stellenbosch Landros decided enough was enough in hillbilly Huntum land and ordered the arrest of Adrian and Petrus van Selle as well as Visa. Another van Selle, Andris, was spared because of his age but was expected to show up in court. However, he just refused to make the journey. It was a third of the van Selles of Huntum that the Stellenbosch Landros really wanted to cross-examine and that was Adrian's other son, Willem. It was during Koi testimony that locals in Stellenbosch found out with some horror what madness had been taking place in the hunter. Willem had murdered Andre's daughter, Anki, by stringing her up from a tree, flogging her with a shambok, shooting her twice in the head, and then finishing her off with stones. Naturally, a summons was duly sent to Willem von but neither he nor his brother deemed it wise to join Bisa who had actually arrived in Stellenbosch, along with Andris von Seil. Adrian, in his defence, said he had been tricked by the coin into supporting a raid on the Nunkunkwa people on the Orange River, who'd shot at them first. He also told the Landrus that as far as he was concerned, shooting a couple of Hottentots wasn't a big deal. It was the frontier trekboer national sport, which is not what he said, but that was the implication. As you can see, the frontiers' men were rather cold-blooded, although honest. Landros duly passed sentence in March 1788, banishing Adrian van Sale and Jan Bissa from the colony back to the fatherland, back to Holland. That's a rather curious punishment. Go home and think about your actions. Shooting people isn't nice. See you later. Send my regrets to Amsterdam. Petrus the coy servant, on the other hand, was dispatched to Robin Island. Visa duly arrived back in the hunt within five years because he and his wife begat seven children in the colony between 1791 and 1804. The crazy frontier and its real stories. Petrus served his two-year sentence on Robin Island, but the bitterness didn't stop at his treatment by the colonials. No, things were actually worse at home. His younger brother, Andres seduced Petrus's wife, Margarita Johanna van Skalkwek, And then they continued to roam the huntum in freedom. As Nigel Penn observes, this tale of the Huntum in 1786 through to 1790 is rather revealing. Khoisan and Bastard men joined the settlers in attacking the people of the Orange. While the Trekkboers held power of coercion over these servants, what happened more regularly was these servants were quite willing accomplices. Observing and monitoring these cases where the indigenous people They knew how justice worked or didn't in southern Africa and began to spot a trend. As the floodgates of colonial violence opened up onto the orange, it was clear that the people moving in from the south were going to swamp the people of the islands I spoke about, the Iniquilandas. As the mixed people, the Bastard Hottentots as they were called, moved ahead of the trekburs, they often did the dirty work. The hunting, trading and raiding. Others, like the Urlam, were more independent, as you know, but the colonists referred to them as Trostas deserters. This narrative was to continue for the next century. The Urlams were interesting in that they actually kept the Trekpurs at bay along the river for decades. They were out colonizing the colonizers and had all the skills, as I've explained, the marksmanship, organization, and trading. The result was the colonial frontier settlement stalled for some decades. Before the 1780s, the frontier had been expanding constantly for well over a hundred years. In its stead, there developed a zone of violence and insecurity where raiding and robberies became institutionalized, and the commando system became a system adapted to be mainly predatory instead of enforcing law and order. By 1790, the complaints of white inhabitants in the Bockefeldt became a chorus, alarmingly Groups of koi koi were now trekking to and fro from the Orange River with herds and flocks of livestock in search of good grazing. The trek in these areas watched with misgiving and it must have been nerve-wracking watching these large groups of people appear on the land with their even larger herds. Things were even more chaotic because many of these koi were actually herding cattle and sheep belonging to other white trek As with the American frontier, the richest livestock owners simply ran roughshod over the smallholders, driving their cattle over their land and sending their koi minions to raid the farms when they complained. These raiders would often pick up livestock that did not belong to them as they moved vast herds across the Hunter. Feldwachtmeister Petrus Ludovicus Teran wrote that the koi koi from the Bockefeld who journeyed to Namakwa began with no livestock but by some miracle headed home with a large herd in the late 1780s. It was time, he said, to halt this movement and to stop the habit of carrying firearms. It was time too, said the colonists, to control who could live in the Makwa and the huntermen and who couldn't. How to do this, though, was another matter. The colonists ignored all attempts at controlling movement. How were they going to enforce this against the Koi? In October 1790, Johannes Augustus van den Hever, the felt corporal of Little Namakwaland, reported that Trekpoers had already headed over the Orange, the supposed boundary. Matthias Eersterhuizen, Peter Pesednote, Isaac Bosman the Younger, Gilliam Pesachi, David Frey, and Johannes Witzmann were already in the Groot Namaqualand. Four hundred Bastard Hottentots, as the Landrost called them, also headed that way, and all of these bands of travelers had horses and firearms. The bands were trading stock with the Namakwa and herding the cattle and sheep south into the huntam. Guns were now becoming a bigger issue. When Van Den Hever attempted in 1789 to disarm Klaas Barent, Adam Koch, De Kleiner, Cornelis Koch and others who had muskets, Klaas gave him a very clear message. Klaas said as long as he had powder and lead, he'd defend himself against the Christians to the last bullet. Quite a modern thought then. This attitude, needless to say, created a little unease amongst the trick of Hunter. Then came news that the kraal of a friendly Khoi Tavobur, as they were known, had been attacked by the Urlams. Ten people were shot dead, men, women and children once more. Funden Hever wrote that the great Namakwa were being driven out of their homes by the Urlums, and these broken clans would group and then attack the settlers. It was turning into cycles of plunder, robbery, pillage, rape and theft. But another letter proved to create a different perspective. Cornelius Koch sent this a month later, and wanted to set the record straight. He defended his right to own land and firearms, explaining that he'd been living on the lone farm or leeg plots of his father, Captain Adam Koch I. The farm was called Spitzkopi and lay across the Orange River, inside the territory of the Great Namakwa. It had been given to Adam Koch I by Governor Tulbach 20 years before, and Cornelius had five muskets needed to protect his livestock. Three had been bought from colonists. One he had bartered from den Hottentot Swartboy he said, that was in exchange for two heifers. The fifth was one that cost three oxen and was obtained from the felt corporal of the Kamisberg. Cornelius, said he, his father and brothers were engaged in peaceful behaviour, unlike Jan Blum, he said, who was actually in cahoots with huntam farmer Christian Bock and his son Michiel. He also pointed out that the biggest problem in the huntum was Trekboer Adrian van Sale, who had terrorized locals, then stole cattle from the Tswana who were further inland. All this finger-pointing was becoming tiring. More finger-pointing followed. Captain Africana, the terror of Namakwaland, was stealing from everyone. Whites, blacks, koi, mixed, everyone. The Namakwa had a few tales of their own, which they related to the various Landrosts. These Namakwa, Odalunks, Kupidolinks, Yankee Skapa Wachter, Yankee Goes, and Swarteboy passed on some bad news one day. They said Trekboers Gilliam Versaje, Matthias Easterhessen, Barend Frey, Peter Brandt, and Isaac Bosman the Younger were attacking Namaqua and they had proof. After a few more reports of this type, the Landros of Stellenbosch ordered Versaje and his companions to appear before him in March 1791. Of course, they ignored him. They were living 400 kilometers away. Then, in September 1791, more trouble. A trek-boer from from Macami's Makamisberg called Johannes Bjorkus had had enough of his fellow colonists' bandit thuggery, particularly for Saki, and escorted Captain K. Kaub, a great Namaquan chief, along with a man called Urtman, who lived close to the Orange, all the way to Stellenbosch. Trekboer boer was a symbol of law and order, he had grown wary of the destructive impulses of folks like Vassaghi. These, the Macquarie, had a terrible tale to relate. Kaub said they had been attacked for years by groups of whites and bastard Hottentots and had 14 killed and 12 wounded and all their stock was now stolen. They wanted justice. Orders were duly issued for the arrest of Peter Beseidnot, Johannes Witzmann, Matthias Esterhaisen, Barent Frey, Peter Brandt and Gilliam Vassaghi and that was on the 29th of September 1791. As usual, they all ignored the arrest warrant, but unfortunately for Fosaki, his wife, Elsab, better known as Elsie Fosaki, had trekked from the Orange River to Cape Town with a few coy servants as companions. This is quite a trip in 1791 for a woman. It's almost 900 kilometres, but the folks were pretty tough back in those days. She had some cattle and two wagon loads of products, believed to be ivory, and she was doing business in the Cape. When Elsie Fosaki was ordered to Stellenbosch to give evidence, she pulled the race card, saying that the Koi, not being white nor Christian, couldn't be trusted, and demanded that Odolinx appear before her and repeat the allegations to her face. Remember, Koi servants were killed out of hand for this sort of thing, so she obviously thought her bully girl tactics would work. They didn't. In fact, they backfired spectacularly. One of the Koi accusers who pitched up to face her in the Stellenbosch court was Cupido Lynx, who, yes, pointed his finger at her and said, you lie. Silence in court. This was a shocking moment. Her dignity as a white woman was impaired, she declared, but worse was to follow. Landros Bletterman had run out of patience with Kilian Versaughi, who had ignored his demands to appear in Stelabosch, and he let rip at Mrs. Versaughi. Do you know where your husband is? Complaints have been coming in ever since you rogues, scum and deserters have been in the felt and when your husband is found, he'll be brought to the Cape and punished with life and limb. Things got even worse for Mrs. Vasaki. She lashed out at the coy servants who travelled with her, clearly not thinking the whole thing through. They had nothing to do with her plight, and the two, Adrian and Andreas, were flung into jail by her local pal, L.A. Then suddenly Mrs. Vasaki was left alone on the felt, Approaching sixty years old, with only her thirteen-year-old son as protection. She made the mistake then of travelling to Cape Town, then back to near Stellenbosch, but was attacked on the route and all her possessions stolen. Her attackers left her and her son alive, and with their ox wagons and oxen, but bereft. Mrs. Fasaki fell ill. While lying, recuperating, on the farm of Michiel Extian, Landros Bletterman placed her under house arrest. When it rains, it pours. Eventually, on the 22nd of December, she was allowed to return home facing no further charges, but her husband, Gilliam Fisaki, remained at large. It was the Van Rienens, that wealthy family of the Cape, who would come to Fisaki's assistance shortly, and believe it or not, the motivation was a secret mission to discover gold. With that curious thought, almost a century before the discovery of gold on the Witwatersrand, we need to halt and draw our wagons into a circle. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. You can also contact me via my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.